and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks again for being here. Weather's getting a lot warmer. KTAR and Fulton Homes reminding you that two seconds is too long to take your eyes off your kids around water. For life-saving water safety tips and to enter to win swim lessons from the YMCA, just text the word SWIM to 620-620. Vladimir Putin has laid out some of the demands for a ceasefire, and uh, some of them is, is seem like they're easy to do. He wants a face-to-face with the president of Ukraine, President Zelensky, and uh, Zelensky said he is not opposed to that. But Putin also is going to make demands about some of the territories that are separatist, that he wants them acknowledged, and he wants Crimea acknowledged as Russian territory as well, which I don't know that that's going to happen. That was taken in 2014 um, illegally by the, in the minds of most. But I want you to hear a little bit of this. This is an ABC report. and has to do with our president having a call with the president of China regarding Ukraine. A long call, nearly two hours. This initial readout from the Chinese saying the Ukraine crisis is something we don't want to see. Relevant events once again show us that state-to-state relations cannot go to the point of confrontation. In the statement, China writing, as a permanent member of the UN Security Council and the world's two largest economies, we must not only lead the development of China-U.S. relations on the right track, but shoulder our due international responsibilities and make efforts for world peace. So it sounds like, at least from that comment, it sounds like the Chinese are staying out of Ukraine. Now, what they're doing behind the scenes is always the question. We have intel gatherers that do things to see what's happening. Are they helping the Russians militarily? Are they helping them with financing? Um, Putin has admitted that the the restrictions by the Western world and the sanctions that are put against him are crippling his economy. Will China prop up that economy? And this is what is so difficult as Americans. We look at this and realize that. The people that need to be punished, the oligarchs, uh, especially Putin and his military staff, none of those people are going to miss a meal. This is going to adversely affect the average Russian citizen, many of which have no idea what's really going on. They've been lied to. Um, And I want you to hear, I played a little bit of this before, but of all people, uh, former governor of California, and obviously you know him as a famous actor and bodybuilder, Arnold Schwarzenegger, took to social media. And he was speaking directly to the Russian people about how they've been lied to. So I want you to hear a couple of things he said in his address trying to reach the Russian citizens. Some of the soldiers were told they were going to fight Nazis. Some were told that the Ukrainian people would greet them like heroes. And some were told that they were simply going on exercise. They didn't even know that they were going into war. And some were told that they were there to protect ethnic Russians in Ukraine. None of this is true. He goes on to talk about the idea of Nazis and why it's an absurd idea because of the Ukrainian president and people in Ukraine. I know that your government has told you that this is a war to denazify Ukraine. To Nazify Ukraine. This is not true. Ukraine is a country with a Jewish president, a Jewish president, I might add, whose father's three brothers were all murdered by the Nazis. You see, Ukraine did not start this war. Neither did nationalists or Nazis. Those in power in the Kremlin started this war. 
So if word can get to the Russian people, if the Russian people begin to revolt against their government, but it's a different kind of revolt than we have here. We have protests in the street all the time, and uh, people are allowed to voice their opinions here, and that it, it, you can do it in what people feel to be relative safety here. You're not going to be locked up for protesting. You get locked up for breaking other rules during a protest, but our right to assemble, our First Amendment rights – guarantee that we are allowed to assemble. We are allowed to criticize our government. The press enjoys special protections as they are allowed to call out and tell the truth if the government is lying. They That is something that is their responsibility. Along with a lot of rights go responsibilities. The press in this country has a great responsibility to inform the American people about the truth. Now we understand that as much as people may try, many people are still going to inject their own personal feelings and opinions into a story, even if they're trying to be legitimate journalists. But that's the responsibility of the American press is to inform the American public, especially when it comes to government matters. We know in Russia, they control the media, the Russian people getting outside information that they can believe and trust. Schwarzenegger is such an international figure. It's somebody that people may trust. They are going to have a harder and harder time hiding the loss of life and the loss of equipment that they are losing in Ukraine. The biggest, I think, so far, and we'll find out more as more details about this call comes out with with the Chinese leader. It looks as if China is looking and is at least saying, hey, we must preserve the two the world's two biggest economies. We must preserve our relationship and work for world peace. If they are agreeing to stay out of this, that is going to send a harrowing message to Vladimir Putin. If he is not going to be bailed out militarily or financially by the Chinese, he is going to have to start reassessing. There are reports that he's about two weeks away or less even from running out of ammunition with the the troops he has there. Does he get desperate? He has threatened genocide against his own people. He made comments about saying that we need to we need to cleanse ourselves of the traitors within Russia. To me, that is such a when you say something like that. It's horrifying to me. Um, You know, we had a and I just I don't even want to use the name anymore. We had a state legislator here in Arizona recently talk about political enemies and we need to hang them in public gallows. You know, it's just the statements you shouldn't ever, ever, ever make about people. We have a, we have the ability and a history in this country of severe disagreements. I have disagreements with people that I agree with most of the time. And, you know, I, I, I try to be as fair as I can. I don't lose respect for the people just because they disagree with me. And we are always, it's one thing about us that we should always respect, that we are going to passionately stand up for what we believe in. And you should also feel safe in doing that. You can disagree with me. I could be one against a hundred in my belief and feel that although you may yell and shout and scream and whatever else, I'm going to be safe in my opinion. You are not going to make it so that I can't say it. And in in a nation like Russia, where they, they do silence dissidents, they do silence people that speak out against them. Um, but they're going to have a hard time silencing that entire country. And what's happening in Ukraine with the pushback from the Ukrainian people, it's becoming more and more clear to everyone that if Russia keeps this up, even if they become victorious, what they have won is going to be a wasteland because the Ukrainian people are going to fight to the last Ukrainian person and until the last building is standing. And that's the message that they've sent, which is why the world 
world has rallied around President Zelensky is is his courage and his patriotism and his love of his own country and, and love of freedom. That's why the Americans are looking at this and saying this is an amazing undertaking. I'm going to talk about our summer school program. What we learned earlier this morning, the head of the program is a woman named Lisa Graham Keegan. You may recognize the name. She was the superintendent of public schools in Arizona for a long time. She was a state legislator. She's a, an author, and, and so she's so well-versed in education. She's excited about this summer program, camps across the state of Arizona, the response from the community of organizations that want to have these camps. We're going to talk about what we learned coming up here in just a couple of moments. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, appreciate you being here. Love the fact that you've joined us for part of your day. We had a great conversation with Lisa Graham Keegan. Lisa Graham Keegan used to be the, was at one time the superintendent of public instruction here in Arizona. Um, many consider her to be a, a, a great education expert. She's written books. Um, she's also been a state legislator. She has been tapped by the governor to be the head of the chair of the Arizona on track summer camps that are going on. So we had a conversation with her this morning because what they are doing right now is they are um, they are signing up organizations that want to lead these camps. So I talked to her about the curriculum and what's going to happen, and this is a little bit of what she had to say. Math, civics, literacy, plus adventure. So those are the parameters. The curriculum itself is totally up to the schools. So it's totally up to the schools, but there are the parameters are that it's got to be math, it's got or it's got to be reading, it's got to have some other things in there, and it's all listed for these organizations. But how many people have already been interested in this? What is the interest level of organizations, public schools, charter schools, um, and other organizations that want to lead these camps? We opened up last Monday, so it hasn't been two weeks yet, Mike. We already have applications for 629 camps that would serve about 58,000 students. This is very fast. Any idea how many teachers it's going to take for the demand that'll be out there? Have you guys set estimates? Well, we set estimates on how many camps we would need, right? We think it's somewhere around 1,400 and to be sitting at 630 right about now is uh, really gratifying. So, and within each of those camps, it just depends how they set them up. And we are really requesting that all groups seek to pay their teachers about 20% more of whatever their average salary has been. One of the things that I like about this is the smaller class sizes, which I think even the teachers will enjoy more attention each individually for each individual student because there'll be smaller group sizes. But also they're going to do an assessment when a child enters the program, and then there's going to be an assessment at the end of the program, and a report will be written by the teacher that when that child goes into school the next year, there's going to be a report of where that child is, where their needs are. I think that's a great way for a teacher to get a student in the fall to realize where the help is needed for that individual child. Um, I like the idea of where this is going, and I wonder if you're going to see camps, and I hope this is what happens, and we will talk with with, uh, uh, Ms. Keegan again, is I'm hoping that the direction they go is they'll be specialized. 
So if there's a camp that want, they want to set up a math camp and they want to set up a math camp for these kids within this age group. And so you go online and you see, OK, near me, there is a math specific camp for an age group that where my child is. This is really going to help him or her um, in reading, you know, a reading camp where we are going to really focus on kids under the third grade or at the third grade level of really impacting their reading skills. If it's that specialized where you can have a child that it, that does that, I think that would be amazing. I, I think th- that would help. It's like having, you know, having a tutor. And there are many people that spend time and money on that. The question about kids, what's going to be like for kids that don't have that summer break? I, if it's done the right way. I think it's going to be a good break from the standard classroom training and give children a chance to catch up. And I'm going to be interested to see how many of these curriculums work and if they do work, why, and see if any of those get implemented back into the classroom. In the end, I think all of us, whether we agree or disagree on a lot of the issues when it comes to education, what we all want is the same thing. We want children that enter the public school system classically at five years old and leave it at 18 after they graduate from high school, have enough tools in the tool belt to be educated further if they're going on to higher learning or learn a skill and whatever they're going to do next and have the ability to learn for the rest of their life. In the end, freedom begins with reading, in my opinion. Yes, all of the other things are important, but you have to read to do everything else. Our ability to read. If I could say anything to a young person when I talk to groups of young people, learn to read. I, I, and I'm not, I realize I'm the biggest hypocrite on the planet if you knew me when I was in high school. I was the worst high school student on the planet. I wasn't a bad kid. I wasn't a criminal. I just did not want anything to do with school. I wanted to work. I don't know why. At 12 years old, I gave up sports. I gave up being an athlete. I gave up being a kid. I just wanted to be a grown-up. I went to work at a restaurant at 12, got another one at 15, and I've worked my entire life, and I love to work. When I got older, I realized I missed out a lot on education. Had I not been taught those basic skills by my elementary school teachers and my middle school teachers, where I was an excellent student, I had the tools still to be educated when I got older. Then you have no idea how many times I've been so thankful that I've had those skills. When I transitioned into this industry, when I learned to be an electrician, and this isn't, I'm, I don't, I'm not telling any of these stories to give you my resume, but I started out at 18 years old not knowing anything about the electrical trade. Within six years, I was the manager of a small company on an island called Sanibel Island in, in Florida. Now, it was a small outfit, and it was only a few of us that worked there, but I had worked Worked my way up in a skill level into management because I still had the tools to learn. So if you've got a child that is not very good in school, that's bored in high school, whatever, I know it's frustrating, but if they've got the basic tools to learn when they find whatever it is that motivates them further, making sure they've got the skill set so that they can excel in that area. How many kids, if you do, if we did the study, and I probably should have, and I wish I would have, and I apologize, how many of our kids that are coming out of Arizona public schools are going into our state universities or our community colleges that have to go into remedial classes that before you can start taking college. Now, you've graduated from high school. These are people that have graduated from high schools in Arizona that when they're testing into our state universities or community colleges are being directed to remedial learning 
in one or more subjects before they can take college-level courses. That is a failure on our part. That is a failure on our part to make sure that they have the skill set necessary for the next part of their life. And it's a shame. I mean, to me, that is that it, it makes us all weaker. It weakens their chances at success, and it weakens weakens us as a as a community. Equipping them with that tool belt, whether they use that tool belt and take it seriously until they get older or not, is something that is so important. And I'm hoping that this program gets kids back on track and gets them excited about learning again. And if that can happen, what a what a refreshing thing moving forward this might be. Do I think this is going to be a cure-all? No one does. But a huge step in the right direction. A huge step in the right direction. In a moment, we are going to talk to another gubernatorial candidate, Democrat candidate for governor. Marco Lopez joins me next. Values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks so much for being here. Appreciate you spending some time with the show. We are going to, throughout the rest of this election year, bring you the candidates as they become available on issues so that you know in these big statewide races that we have here that are really going to... um, you know, they're, they're going to either change dramatically the direction of Arizona or take us in the same direction, uh, possibly depending on which parties win. One of the biggest races, of course, is the governor's race. Joining us right now is gubernatorial candidate, Democratic Party, Marco Lopez. Marco, Marco, welcome back to the show. Let's start off with something, a topic that everybody seems to be talking about, and that's the border issue. And uh, I want to start there because we know that this Title 42 may be ending, and the expectation is there may be a huge influx of people coming across the border. What can and what should the governor of Arizona be concerned about and should they do regarding this border issue? Good morning, Mike. It's uh, great to join you again. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Indeed, I think that uh, especially seasonally, we uh, normally along the border see an uptick of activity. As you know, uh, I was a border mayor and I also ran the agency of Customs and Border Protection as its chief of staff under President Obama. And so what we need to expect is that the processing is done in an orderly fashion, uh, Mike. And that's what we've got to make sure that the federal government is uh, putting the right um, manpower in place and technology to be able to properly address it. So that, again, we all expect those operations to be done in a safe and orderly manner. And as the weather begins to uh, shift, And uh, as the CDC uh, uh, analyzes again in the next 60 days, if they are going to lift Title 42, we need to be sure that the federal government is prepared for that influx, not only at the ports where uh, people need to claim properly asylum, but also in between the ports so that smugglers are properly being identified, tracked, and then prosecute it for uh, illicit activities between the ports of entry, Mike. And see, I think, and that issue on the drugs, um, when we have the drug traffickers taking advantage of how overwhelmed some of the border agents are, what can you, you know, in a state government, it's got to be frustrating to the border towns that seem to be outmanned and outgunned a lot of times with what's happening. How, how do we help at the state level with local law enforcement throughout the state with what we know is this killer and fentanyl especially? Yeah, and look, uh, first of all, I think it's important to recognize that a lot of 
the illicit contraband does come uh, in between the ports, airports, seaports included. Uh, but that uh, which does escape uh, in between the ports, it's about manpower. And today, uh, the agency uh, responsible for those operations is about 5,000 less, uh, has about 5,000 less agents. Mike, when I uh, had the opportunity to be part of Customs and Border Protection, we had about 20,000 men and women deployed across our borders. Today, it's down to about 15,000 because the previous administration focused so much attention on just building the wall that they did not do the necessary uh, work in recruiting and retaining uh, border agents, but also the technology. There's uh, aircraft that is grounded in uh, Sierra Vista and in Tucson, for example, that would be used to respond to those incidents uh, when there is an incursion uh, at uh, between the ports. And so that's why it has to be a whole uh, system that we think about manpower, technology, and boots on the ground. And so that's what we've got to focus on, pushing uh, Alejandro Mayorkas, for example, the Secretary of Homeland Security, and the administration to make those investments. That's what has results, uh, not uh, photo ops that uh, sadly I, I see a lot of my uh, Republican opponents go down there and do a photo op and then scream and yell, but don't have a real solution. Let's shift gears to the economy, because I know that under Governor Napolitano, you were the head of the director of the Department of Commerce here. Well, let's talk about that in Arizona, our trade partnerships and how, where our economy is now as a state. How do you feel about the state's economy and where would you like to see it go if you became governor? That's a great question, Mike. Look, the reality is that our economy depends on small business. I am a small business owner myself, and I know the stress that a lot of our small businesses are undergoing because of the pinch in our supply chain. And so I think this is where we have a great opportunity as companies look uh, uh, at getting away from Asia, out of China. Uh, right now, Texas is the most uh, appealing alt, uh, option because they have 28 ports of entry. So what I uh, firmly believe, we need to invest in the infrastructure to make that trade relationship uh, more appealing for companies to be, be able to take advantage of NAFTA uh, that they do in Texas today. But we just can't compete to that uh, degree because we only have three functioning commercial ports of entry versus Texas's 28. So that's what we've got to do, and it'll help our supply chain by bringing companies back. They can manufacture between Arizona and uh, Mexico. And that t today, for instance, with just those three ports, it's about a $15 billion, 16, I'm sorry, billion dollar trade relationship that creates about 180,000 jobs in our state, Mike. We can grow that, but we need to invest in the infrastructure. Otherwise, Texas is going to continue to uh, be more competitive than us here in Arizona. Now, I know you've got a, a, a formidable opponent in the Secretary of State, but you've also picked up a major endorsement, or I guess the first time someone has switched endorsements, correct? Just a few minutes ago, indeed, uh, Representative Andrade uh, joined our efforts. Uh, so that adds to our continued uh, building of our coalition, Mike. We know that in order to respond to the challenges and needs of Arizona's children and working families, we need to continue to build a movement and a coalition uh, that helps us get our message out to each one of our 15 counties and 22 tribes. And labor is part of that. Uh, I'm excited that 
IBEW, you know, you, I, I read your background. You uh, uh, know a few things about uh, being an electrician. Yep. Uh, so I was happy to have uh, IBEW endorse our campaign. And with uh, Representative Andrade's uh, endorsement today, it signals that commitment to working families. Everyone who's listening to us today deserves a good paying job, good benefits, and to be protected uh, in, those, uh, in those jobs. That's why more people are starting to join our effort uh, because they recognize that I'm going to be their champion. I'm going to work for every family in Arizona, regardless of which party they, they, they're a member of, or maybe they're not a member of any party. They still deserve a fighter, someone that's going to stand up for them. Um, before I let you go, Marco Lopez is joining us, and he is a candidate for governor here in Arizona. I want—I had Lisa Graham Keegan on with me, and she was talking about the summer school program of the governors, the on-track Arizona program that's happening. Now that that's becoming more clear of what it's going to look like, how do you feel about this program? Do you think it's a good program? Do you think it's going to help get kids back on track? Well, look, I think that it's going to uh, require much more than a summer program to get uh, qualified teachers back in the classroom year round. That's really the priority that we've got to focus on, Mike, making sure that the government is properly investing in our teachers, uh, in our classrooms. It's that anxiety that I hear from so many families throughout the state as I talk to them, not knowing if their child is going to leave their, their home that morning and if there's going to be a qualified teacher in that classroom. We've got to make sure that that's where our investment is in our public school system with qualified teachers, that we are recruiting them, that we are retaining them and they that they are, you know, imparting the skills that our kids need. Uh, So I think it's going to be way more than a summer program to catch up our kids and then to get out of the bottom. We're 49th in educational uh, uh, investment in the country. Only Mississippi is worse than us, Mike. And I can't live by and and watch our state continue to decline in our educational achievements. So we deserve more. Our kids deserve more. And I'm going to make sure every single day that I'm waking up as governor with the support of folks who are listening to our uh, conversation today, uh, that they know that their governor is fighting for them and their kids and making sure that they can also achieve a great success here in our state. If people want to learn more about your campaign or join your campaign, where can they find you online? They can go to MarcoLopez.com and join us there. Uh, And we're always happy to have, uh, again, as many volunteers, because that's what powers our movement. It's that promise of Arizona that anything can be achieved here if you're willing to work hard, play by the rules, treat people fairly and with respect. Everyone has a place in our campaign, and they're welcome to join us, and we would appreciate it. And we'll keep coming back here, Mike, because I do believe that it's important to have that open dialogue with Arizona uh, voters. Absolutely, and I'm thrilled that you've come on again, and I hope to have you back soon. Thank you so much, Mike. MarcoLopez.com. I look forward to staying in touch with as many people as possible. All right. That is Marco Lopez, candidate for governor on the Democratic side of things. We'll see how that primary plays out in a moment. An update on a bill that restricts the filming of police officers. Next. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. If you haven't subscribed to the Mike Broomhead Show podcast yet, you can do it now. It's very simple to do on any device that you have. Never miss a minute of the show. It's the Mike Broomhead Show podcast brought to you this week by my friend Carol Royce, Keller Williams Realty, East Valley. Make the most money selling your home for cash by going to highestprice.com. That's highestprice.com. 
There is a bill in the Arizona state legislature that would limit where you or define how far away you'd have to be when filming a police officer during a police situation. Uh, I think it's common sense. It also helps both sides of this argument. If you are somebody that wants to uh, film the police and the police, I want you to go stand over there and they point across the street and you say, I'm not going all the way across the street. I'm going to stand right here. This says you can be within eight feet of a police officer when they're doing their job. So you have a defined distance in which you're allowed to be. And it's not on the other side of the street. It's not. So for the people that believe that this is limiting or hurting someone's opportunity or ability to catch police in a situation, in a bad situation, it doesn't. If anything, it'll give you better perspective. You're a little further away, but not so far away where you can't see and hear what's going on. The reason why this was brought forward, and it was brought forward by Republicans, was because we have situations now where people are getting in the way of arrests. It's dangerous to the cops, it's dangerous to the suspects, and it's dangerous to the people that are getting too close. And I understand in the day we live in with the cell phones, when something bad happens, we're not grabbing our phones and calling 911, we're turning on the camera and trying to get on TMZ. I get it, that's the society we live in. There is a segment of our society that it wants to document Document what they believe to be is police brutality and misbehavior by the cops. Don't have a problem with that either. I was also someone that is a proponent of body cameras for police officers. I understand the privacy issue. I absolutely get a privacy issue that officers would be concerned about private conversations being listened in on. But I think that 99% of the time, what we see from body camera footage is it shows the difficult position that officers are put in. It also is helpful in investigations. Um, The tragic shooting of Officer Tyler Maldivan in Phoenix, um, that shooting was... Uh, captured on body camera, they were able to identify the suspect who they had later they had caught a short time after as the shooter from the body camera footage. The shooting of all of those officers in the West Valley, in which a total of nine Phoenix police officers were injured either directly by gunfire or by shrapnel, um, was documented where it was an it was, it was an attempted execution of a police officer documented on body camera footage. So it has become an invaluable tool for police officers, I believe. The public has a First Amendment right, and if we if we defend each other's rights, especially when we disagree, I think it gives more credibility. What I'm saying is I am someone, if you've listened to this show, that is unapologetically pro-law enforcement. I just am, and I know so many cops. I have my brother and my sister-in-law are cops. And my brother, even though he's my youngest brother, has been my hero since he was a little boy. He's just been the kid and now the adult I look up to. Great husband, great father, great cop. And so I admire what they do for a living. So I understand there are people out there that disagree with me. And I'm saying I understand and defend the right you have to that First Amendment right. And it shouldn't be violated. But anybody who thinks being closer than eight feet from a police situation is wise, I think you're wrong. And eight feet is close enough to hear everything that's being said and to view everything that's being done and to document it.
It protects your First Amendment rights, but it protects the cops from worrying about an attack, and it protects you from being inadvertently injured in the middle of a fight because those situations trained, change so dramatically in an instant. That's the biggest part of this. If you saw the body camera footage of the first police officer on the scene of that, what turned out to be nine officers being injured, he was being lured into the house by someone who was saying his girlfriend was shot and come check on her. And in a split second, this guy unloaded an entire magazine at this police officer. That's how quickly these situations become deadly. And it protects everybody involved. So I think it's a great idea, and I'm hoping that now that it's passed out of committee, it ends up passing completely. Coming up just after 11 o'clock, we shift our focus back to Ukraine and Russia. The president, our president, had a conversation with the Chinese president. We'll talk about that next.